Hello, and welcome to my podcast, P.S. Spooky Shades. I'm your host, Chappie, and in today's episode, we will be getting into the dead, how we honor them, and also stories from beyond the grave. (laughs) Alright, enough with the dramatics, let's jump right into it. Alright, to begin with, we're going to go with one of our submitted stories for the episode for the dead. My grandmother was born in 1925. She was one of many women who took on many roles here in the U.S. for the men fighting in World War II. She built airplanes and said it was so much fun and she loved it. After my grandpa passed away, her recent diagnosis of Alzheimer's slowly got worse and worse. One of us grandkids had to stay with her during the week to make sure she wouldn't do anything to accidentally hurt herself. For a long time, it worked well, but it was hard on some of us kids. She either wouldn't remember who we were for a second, or she would sit in her recliner watching TV in the living room and randomly say, Frank, my grandpa, would be home any minute now. Having to watch my siblings and mother tell her that her husband died many times and see her reaction over and over, It was very hard as a child. It felt like we were hurting her, and I hated that. Once her disease progressed so badly, she had to be moved to a home for Alzheimer patients. We had so many memories on her land and in her house. It hurt all of us kids to not only have our grandma taken away to some strange place, but also to lose the only piece of land that truly felt like home to us. To put it into perspective, her land was seven acres off of a small road with many other little houses and a little subdivision past it. We had a giant barn to find old trinkets our grandpa left behind, a tire swing our grandpa had made especially for us, giant pine trees that had grown so strong us kids could climb to the very top of them, and all the homegrown fruit we could eat. There was a pear tree, apple trees, grapevines, both red and green. And lastly, I would guess to be 40-plus blackberry bushes that we spent our summers eating endlessly and having blackberry fights with each other. The Christmases were the absolute best there. Three of us grandkids, plus our niece, would spend the night on Christmas Eve and watch the Golden Girls, play cards or board games with her, and even did made-up skits. Our grandma loved it and would always be hysterically laughing at us. I love that so much. But now all those good memories were just that, memories. We visited our grandma as much as we could through the years, but as time went on, we all got a little older and it became less and less that we visited her. We would still try to as much as we could, but sometimes it wasn't all of us. And I know our grandma wanted to see and needed to see all of us, but we tried to make do. During the holidays, we definitely made more attempts to see her as we would take notice of the poor older people whose families never came and we would try to talk to them and not let them feel left out or unloved. We never wanted to, we never wanted that for our grandma either. But as time went on, even more, our grandma grew less and less talkative. We could only get a word here and there out sometimes. It wouldn't even make sense. Most of the time she would just mumble and groan That's when my sister and I decided that she needed to hear music. So we would either sing to her or play her favorite songs, and she would start moving and swaying to the music while mumbling the lyrics. It seemed to help lift her spirits a little. Our grandma passed away from pneumonia on 
August 8, 2019. It was obviously sad, but also glad that she was free of that lonely place and no longer stuck in her own head of confusion. She was at peace. Her favorite color was always red. I never forgot that. And when I was much younger, I remember asking her what her favorite bird was. She told me she always loved the cardinal. After the funeral was over, I had traveled back home. For weeks, this cardinal that I had never seen, mind you. I've lived in the same place for four years now. He just kept coming very close to where I would stand to take the dog out. He would chirp so loudly, and he seemed to only appear when I came outside. I never heard or saw him otherwise. It was like it was her sending me a sign that she was happy and free. I was sad for many weeks just grieving internally, but every day that cardinal appeared out of nowhere and made me smile through the tears. I questioned if I had tried hard enough for her, or if I could have done anything to make her more happy, but that cardinal always stopped my negative thoughts and came by near, nearby to sing to me. I know it sounds funny, but I really do believe it was either her, or at very least, it was her sending her love and comfort through her favorite bird, so I would know she was there and loved me. All right, thanks for the submission on that. What a beautiful story. I think back to many times I've seen um, just different stories. Um, I know I've told them here before, but there was the time whenever my friend's grandma died and all of a sudden she heard and her husband heard her name being called in that voice and it was while they were grieving so they went to another place to spend the night because it freaked them out so much but it later it comforted them that she was reaching out like i'm good i know personally my mom has woken up um she's sensitive too so she's woken up after my grandpa died uh and seen him just laying in the bed next to her and she was like, oh, it's just you. And fell back asleep. And then another time, my mom was helping one of her friends through her husband passing. And they had been up for days. And, you know, it was just very hard on both of them, especially the lady losing her husband. And my mom and her took a nap after he passed. And my mom woke up to the sound of the guy that passed laughing and saying, it's real. I can't believe it. It's all real. And she never told her friend about this until about a year or two later when her friend was really struggling as she brought it up then as she felt it was appropriate. And it did give the, her friend some peace. So I think stories like that from Beyond the Grave are pretty special and pretty cool. So I've heard of many different totems of the dead people like a butterfly or a cardinal or something that that person enjoyed in life uh coming to visit you know and giving comfort to the people grieving i've heard several stories like that so it's really cool that they happen to other people and they keep repeating so death has always been a huge mystery for us it's always been the unknown so whenever we get signs or you know little touches from the other side it's kind of beautiful all right we go from the beautifully dead to the macabre a little bit. In this article from Finance Yahoo, <laughs> there's a BuzzFeed article in there that 
uh, says morgue workers are revealing how humans behave once they are dead. My grandfather was a funeral director, and my dad worked there as a kid. He said it wasn't uncommon for a body to exhale suddenly, sometimes with some vocalization. Oh my god, that is so creepy. Number two, rigor mortis can sometimes make a body sit up in a funeral home or morgue, depending on where it sets in. <sighs> I could not be a funeral director or a mortician. Those things would just be too much. I'd be like, it's spiritual. I gotta get out of here. One thing that happens that people might not realize is that purge fluid can leave acid burns on your face. It can be unsettling to see on a natural death. My dad picked up a body from a nursing home, and when he went to make the incision, the lady moaned, and blood started coming out of the incision. He called the nursing home, who apparently made a mistake. They sent the ambulance to the funeral home and took her back to the nursing home, where she actually expired a few hours later. Number five. I work in a lab and got a set of testicles and penis because a mental patient jumped out the second story window at the institution. Jesus had apparently told him to tie his junk to the doorknob before he did it. Number seven. Once we got one so far decomposed that the medical examiner didn't even bother stitching them up after the autopsy. I can still smell that one. And sometimes the body looks fine and all, but they purge like hell. I get nauseous thinking about colors, smells, and noises from purges. The other day, I swore I heard somebody cough in the back office while I was supposed to be alone in the building. The creepiest stuff to me is when we get gruesome deaths. I never thought I'd have to see bodies in the state that I've seen some bodies. My cousin is a cop and got in loads of trouble one time. The alarm went off at the funeral home late one night, so he went in to check it out, and the dead body set straight up fast as and he shot it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Number 10. A guy tried to steal the body of some girl. He was her ex and decided it was his divine right to bury her in his yard instead of her husband. He kicked in the door when the hall was clear, put her in a wheelchair, and then tried to sneak her out of the store loading dock. He was stopped only because patients are not allowed to exit through the do these doors, sir, and had to leave through the front lobby, where he was recognized by a family friend. Right, let's go over to Thought Catalog, 15 True Scary Stories from People Who Worked With Dead Bodies. We may have our eyes closed when we die, but they don't stay that way. The first time I realized this was around 3 a.m. and I had to check something in the morgue. I looked and this dead dude's eyes were looking in my direction. Oh my gosh, I couldn't, I couldn't. I'm too spiritually minded and I would totally think that all of these coughs and groans and staring at me we're part of some kind of spirit reaching out, and so I, I just couldn't. The elongated neck. Oh, this sounds super creepy. We had to cut down a guy who hanged himself in his garage. Nothing overly special, except his neck had stretched. And I mean a good 10 to 12 inches. I had made a comment about him looking like a giraffe. The police officer beside me said, more like a brontosaurus. It was a heavy set man hanging. Oh my gosh. Missing body. Someone hung themselves with piano wire from my hometown bridge when I was a teen. The head and body were found separately, a week or two apart. Body was found first. Every thunk we heard on our boat while rowing, training, 
We all freaked out, thinking it was the missing head. Gosh, I didn't know all the V's would be hanging incidents, so I really apologize to anybody that gets triggered. Trying to put someone's head back on. In my early days as a first responder, rural area, and we were the first on the scene, I responded to a multi-vehicle accident where a man had been decapitated. I got in the passenger side. His head was hanging on by a few tendons on the right side. Without thinking, I grabbed his head and tried to put it back on. I don't know why. In retrospect, I think I saw something that wasn't right, and instinct told me, This goes here. The old-timers laughed and teased me a few times. One of them pulled me aside and told me, It's not the first time someone's done that. It won't be the last. I have heard of other people doing similar things, but haven't per personally witnessed it. 180 degrees. Motorcycle versus car. Rider was thrown. On the approach, the rider's head was still attached, but clearly internally decapitated. It was 180 degrees from where it should have been. Ugh. You're supposed to reorient the head in a neutral inline position, but I had to take a minute to figure out which way to turn it. These are gross. Pudding. I was transporting a man with liver disease and diabetes. I grabbed his arm gently to help him, and the top layer of skin slid off like pudding. I wore my freaking gloves after that. Uninvited. My mom was a paramedic for 15 years and once had to do a body recovery for two teenage girls on a full moon walking through waist-high grass and fog where their wrecked van played uninvited by Alanis Morissette when she was a paramedic. She says it was one of the most unsettling moments of her career. Breathing. My uncle used to tell me the story of a friend he had worked of a friend that he had that worked in a morgue. He used to dress the bodies before viewing and there was this one time he was trying to put a coat on this man so he sat the man up and leaned him over his shoulder while wrapping the coat around him, essentially in a hugging position. And I guess the way the body was leaning let out an air pocket he still had in his lungs, and the body let out a slight exhale, sounding like he was breathing in his ear. Apparently, he quit his job shortly after. Body fluids. Decompose decomposing bodies bursting when opening. Let's just say the ceiling tiles should have been changed. That's disgusting. My ex-mother-in-law was a nurse who apparently entered a room full of doctors working out why a patient had died. She asked, why is there such a strong smell of almonds in the room? It turns out that only a small number of the population have a gene which enables them to smell the poison cyanide. None of the doctors could smell it, but the passing nurse could. They tested the body, and it was cyanide poisoning. Worked the graveyard cleaning crew for a hospital in my early 20s. One of the unexpected aspects of the job was removing recently expired patients to the morgue. It didn't bother me much as they were dead, just that they were now creepy life-size dolls. There was only one instance that spooked me bad. My coworker and I were given notice to move a body out and clean the room for its next occupant. We got up there, got the woman's body out of the bed and onto a gurney, and went around making sure the various apparatus around the bed was dormant. Nurse's job, but we were told to always check. I go stand in front of the, the foot of the gurney to direct it when my coworker squeaks. Dude, she's awake.
Lady was blinking rapidly over freaky, glassed-over dead eyes. Anyone who had seen a dead person's eyes after death knows what I'm talking about. There's clearly no life left in the body. We both freaked out and screamed for the nurses who came running. They called code whatever, thinking she might be waking up. My coworker and I just backed up, flattening ourselves against the windows, and watched the ruckus. Woman was stone dead. No breathing, no heartbeat, no brain activity, nada. None of the nurses or doctor could or would tell us why the woman was blinking. Several hours passed post-mortem. Checking the morgue. I was the night watchman at a mental hospital. One of my jobs was to check the temperature in the small morgue that was located behind the chapel. Now you would think wandering around the bowels of a functioning mental institution would freak most people out, but I was okay with that. Walking into the morgue scared the out of me. There were three drawers and I had to open each of them and make sure they were cool. I was convinced that somebody or somebody was going to be in one of the drawers. The sense of foreboding I had when I opened the drawers literally made me sweat. Every little creak, bump, or tick on the condensers made me jump. I started listening to my Walkman and trying to calm myself down. Yes, children. It was a long time ago. Then I thought that maybe something could sneak up on me while I was plugged in. My freakout level was now about 9.5 when I went in. Nothing ever happened, but I still freak out when I think about it. I worked there for about a year, then had enough money to start university. When people talk about their worst jobs, and I chime in with, I was the night watchman at a mental hospital, it's usually a showstopper. I work in a funeral home. We just finished setting up a body and we're leaving for lunch. I was the last to leave since I wanted to straighten up something before the funeral. I'm alone in the building when I swear I heard a voice talking from the room the body was in. I walked into each room and nobody was there besides me and the body. This was about six years ago and I'm still freaked out to this day. My first dead body was seeing a young teen hit by a train. It's something that will never leave me especially the smell. So we go over to BuzzFeed, where they have 28 stories from graveyards, funeral homes, and hospitals that range from freaky to genuinely heartbreaking. By Hannah Martyr. Number one, I'm still skeptical of things like this, but I used to work as a medic in a rural area. One call, we were transporting a patient who was actively having a heart attack. It was a decent time before we got to the hospital, and after working the patient up, IV, meds, etc., I started talking to them. At one point, this patient started talking to themselves, or so I thought. They were looking to my left and answering questions, responding, and I thought maybe they were getting confused. Then they looked at me and said, you know, he died in here last week, but you said, but said you were so nice. This patient went on to describe a previous patient I had that died from a car accident while we were taking him to the hospital. My partner and I were talking to him as he was somewhat conscious, but his injuries were too severe to last. Number two, I was once working at a mortuary and had to go pick up a man from a mental ex medical examiner's office. When you do that, at least from where I'm from, you get a receipt when they release the body to you. The receipt has all of the personal belongings that are with the deceased. When I brought the man back to the office, I opened up the body bag to make sure all the belongings were there and double check the receipt. 
When I opened up the bag, I was stunned to find this dude looked almost exactly like me. He was my age, had similar tattoos and similar spots, had the same long hair I do, even had the same style jewelry I was wearing. It took me so off guard that I stood there in an existential crisis until the embalmer came in and was like, Hey, how's it going? Ah, holy. That guy looks like you. It's the only case I've had nightmares about, that I'll be the one in the body bag with the deceased man opening me up. Number three, not a funeral home, but I worked at one of the last booth homes for pregnant girls in the early 2000s. Lots of dead babies and some dead moms in the history of that campus. We had any number of creepy things happen, to the point that I brought it up in a staff meeting and the social workers just said, oh, must be time to have the building blessed again. But what stuck with me was the baby swing. I came into the living room and found it swinging by itself, hours after all the teenagers were in bed. Now, this was an ancient mechanical wind-up swing. You had to turn it a crank to start it. There was no electricity involved, and there was no way it just started on its own. It was there, swinging full force. I was completely terrified, but I just said, If you want to swing, I will be happy to wind up the swing for you, but when you do it on your own, it frightens people. Every night for the rest of the year or so, I worked there. I would wind the swing up and let it go. I told other staff members, and I believe they did the same. I like to think it was a sweet baby ghost who just wanted attention, and we gave it attention. Later, they closed the program for parenting teens and made the whole place a homeless shelter. Now I'm sitting here worrying about my ghost baby. <laughs> Is it lonely? I hope not. I worked within hospice and long-term care, long care. The spookiest phenomenon was the man in the corner. It happens all the time for people actively dying. They see a shadowy man in the corner of the room. This is true as someone who has also worked in the industry. They either always see a man in the corner, or their spouses, families who have passed. It's sad, really. They call out for them in their deathbed. I like to think that seeing the man in the corner helps them be ready for what's coming next, which is death. And sometimes the patients react negatively, freaking out, crying, asking for help. And other times they just tell me he's there without any reaction at all. I had a patient way back in 2018 who saw his wife before he passed. He cried for help, but I still can't forget his voice. His wife passed years before he did. He died that weekend. My sister worked as a nurse on the heart patient floor of our local hospital in the 90s. Many of the patients who were near death would see a man sitting in a chair near their bed. He had a gigantic growth on his head like a tumor. This was a former patient who died in the room many years prior. When my father worked at a mortuary, there was one incident where the muscles contracted so that the head turned and looked at him through the little window, the only time he ever felt spooked while working there. Corpses move when you cremate them. People who don't know this get spooked a lot. Yeah, if I was cremating somebody and they turned their head and looked at me, I'd be like, I'd hit the stop button. Oh my gosh, I'd be so freaked out. I would think they were back or something. I don't know. In mortuary school, I had a dream about embalming my dad, but he was still alive. My classmates tried to tell me it was just tissue, gas, and he wasn't actually alive. And to get my stuff together. Then when I cut him open, he gasped a faint help me. So then the next day I had to go to lab, my second case ever, and I told my classmates about the dream. We had a chuckle about it and started to work on our body. It was an old lady, 
had severe arthritis, so when I was breaking the rigor, she literally clutched my hand. It was the only time I ever got the serious heebie-jeebies. I had to step away from her and collect myself for a minute. My grandpa was the mortician for a small town in the late 60s. The morgue was attached to the house that my mom lived in. One day, her boyfriend Tom came over to the house, and no one was home. They had been dating for a while, and he was comfort comfortable going inside and waiting for my mom to come home. On the way to the house, Tom noticed the door and windows into the morgue were open, so he checked it out, found it empty, closed everything, and went into the house. A few minutes later, he heard a lot of slamming noises coming from the morgue, so he ran to see what was wrong and found that the doors and windows had been thrown fully open again. He got out of there really quick. When he told my grandpa about what happened, my grandpa just calmly explained that he had picked up a deceased woman that morning and the spirits were and the spirits were there welcoming her and visiting with her. Next time Tom should just leave the doors and windows open. Number nine. I was a work I was a nurse employed in a nursing home. Electrical disturbances weren't not uncommon. I had residents die during the day, and when I came off shift that night, her call light would be going off. Thinking the light connection to the wall had been disturbed, when they removed her, cleaned the room, I visually checked it, unplugged it, and unplugged it again, and noted there was no issue. Less than an hour later, it was going off again. Knowing what I know, I go in and speak to her, and I acknowledge her and what she was doing, and told her I was really busy, though, and couldn't keep coming in here and checking there all night. It never went off again. I also had a patient let me know she was dead by call light. She had Alzheimer's. She could speak, but wouldn't know what to do with a call light if you explained it. Because of that, her call light often fell to the bottom of the bedside rail, where she couldn't reach it, and was left there. I saw something out of the corner of my eye one night. I look up. It's her call light going off. I think, yep, she is dead. She was, and the call light was at the bottom of the bed rail, totally out of reach. Alright, picking right back in the stories from BuzzFeed. Number 10. During my apprenticeship, I worked at a funeral home said to be haunted by an old funeral director who had a heart attack in the building and died. All he ever did was mess with the chapel lights, and if you called him out, something like, John, the family is coming please don't. They would return to normal. Not really sure if I believe that it was really haunted, but saying something always fixed the issue, so I kept doing it my entire time there. Back when I worked in cardiology, we had this one single room at the end of the floor. We'd put palliative patients or patients that needed isolation in there. I swear, three different patients in the years I worked there told me they had woken in the middle of the night and seen an old man and a little girl holding hands, both standing at the foot of the bed doing nothing. I'm a palliative care RN who didn't really believe in this stuff until I became a nurse. Patients often introduce me to deceased relatives around them or talk to people waiting or being in the room with them. This is an incredibly common experience and I see it happen more often than not. A lot of people know they are going to die imminently, choose when to go wait for loved ones, and I believe much is seen and heard that folks don't talk about during this time. I believe this is because in our younger patients who are, aren't ready to go, there's often a high degree of anxiety, 
and many times I've been asked by a younger patient to help me. I'm going to die today, or similar, like they had held on as long as they possibly could. Then something happens internally, and they see something around them, which gives them a sense of knowing. Once upon a time, I was doing home hospice, and a younger guy in his 50s was dying of occupation-related lung cancer. Patient's 90-year-old father, brother, extended family, and friends came over about 1 a.m., and I left them and sat in the kitchen to give them privacy. As I'm there, I hear this massive burst of wind chimes that was kind of supernatural, as in they did not stop, just a massive burst that went on and on instead of trickling here and there in the wind. A moment later, his daughter came in to tell me that he had passed. I don't usually share my supernatural beliefs about death and dying with families, but I couldn't help but comment on the wind chimes later on. And his wife said, yeah, he collected wind chimes. That doesn't surprise me at all. And turns on the light on the back patio, showing me literally hundreds of chimes, which had been silent all night until he passed. Number 13. Mom told me stories when I was growing up. Her first job out of a nursing school was an RN in the ER of an old hospital in Virginia in the mid-1980s. There was the man in the hat and patient one. Most of the nurses had stories about them. The man in the hat would show up and stand outside the rooms after visiting hours. The patients often died soon after. Patient one was a woman in a very old hospital gown. She'd walk in the halls before entering random rooms. Those patients usually coded. They took the men the man to be an omen of death and the woman to be a heads up to grab the crash cart. Number 14, I'm a body removal tech for a funeral home. It was my first day and we went to pick up a person who had died from a heart attack, it seemed, and it kind of shocked me. His face was bloody and scrunched like he was in pain and I was like, what a horrible way to go. Then when I went to sleep, I could not fall asleep. I kept having flashes of that poor guy in my head. I tossed and turned until I heard, don't worry. I'm fine. And then I was able to sleep for the rest of the night. See, I couldn't do anything dealing with dead bodies because like this person, I would think about it later <laughs> and I probably wouldn't be able to sleep. But that's cool that he came and saw that she was suffering because of his image and was like, don't worry, I'm fine. I wonder if they know when people are thinking of them. That's a cool thought too. Number 15. I work in a cardiac ICU. We have quite a lot of death around here. That being said, we had one patient that comes to mind. I'll call him Greg, which is a fake name. Greg was on the unit for months. He became a meme around the unit, and everyone loved him because he was an old white dude who loved rap, Tubac, and Biggie, and would throw gang signs sarcastically as a nonverbal cue that he was feeling okay. And he had a trach in, so he couldn't talk. He almost he also had his family bring mood lights into his room that synced with his music. I kid you not, his room was playing rap in rave mode sometimes. We called him DJ Greggy G, and he loved it. Unfortunately, he took a turn for the worse, and his condition deteriorated rapidly, and ultimately he died. We were devastated as a unit. His family let us keep the mood lights, and to this day, we keep them plugged in at a nursing station. However, one day the mood lights turned off. We were saddened. No one could get them working. But then they turned on and we were happy. And then they started flashing super irrationally. 
Then we heard the patient that was in Greg's old room start screaming. We went in to check on her. She was a confused old lady who would say some pretty wild things, but this one was weird. She said she was watching the flashing lights in the hall. She could see them from her room, to be fair. Then she said she saw a silhouette of a man casted into the wall from the lights. Then she started yelling, Tell Greg to leave. It's not his room anymore. Tell Greg to go. There is no way she knew it was Greg's room. And with her memory being the way it was, there's also no way she would remember even if she did get told. It was kind of spooky. Number 16. I'm an ICU RN and we had a septic patient in the unit. She was 29 weeks pregnant. She went into labor on my shift and we delivered her baby, stillborn. I did post-mortem care on the baby, retrieved the proper transport container, and walked the baby down to the morgue. It was the middle of the night. I'm in the elevator alone. I hear a baby start wailing. I absolutely lose my stuff. I ripped over the cover, and just as I go to zip down the bag, I hear a calming male voice say, Hush, little one. I've got you. No need to cry. The, gr the crying stopped immediately. Shaking, I opened the bag and saw exactly what I expected to see. A deceased 29-week-old baby. I'm a big, bearded, 40-year-old ICU nurse, and that was the scariest stuff I've ever experienced. No one believes me to this day. I don't even want to speculate what the crying or the voice was. Even typing that out, I felt my chest tighten. I used to work as a nursing assistant in the assisted living communities. Usually, when a resident started to need hospice, they were transferred out to a higher level of care, so I didn't see death for a long time. When I first started, my favorite resident, let's call her Marilyn, would play Scrabble with me. She was completely alert and oriented. Sometimes she would like to sit quietly with an iPod shuffle clipped to her vest and these huge headphones. She loved music. Slowly, she started to decline. I would help her get ready for bed, and she would get upset when she forgot how to do something. The only thing that calmed her down was playing music off my phone. She liked Frank Sinatra and the Beatles. Her independent ability declined rapidly, and soon she was bedridden. Still, she loved listening to music. This was during COVID, and her quality of life was diminished so quickly that we didn't transfer her out. She had an apartment at the facility with all of her belongings where she was comfortable. By the end, her dementia had progressed to the point that she couldn't remember how to swallow. Marilyn passed away with me, the head nurse, and her family at her bedside in the apartment, Unit 202. I did her post-mortem care afterwards, styled her hair how she liked to wear it, and even clipped her little iPod onto her shirt. A few days after she died, a woman in 203, her neighbor, kept wandering into the lobby during the night shift. Always at 3 a.m., she complained of loud music coming from Unit 202. The apartment was vacant, just full of Marilyn's belongings. She said the music was so loud it was deafening. When the night shift worker went to check, they didn't hear anything. Not really creepy, more sad. I miss Marilyn, right? End of life doula here. So many of my clients have had loved ones who already have passed come to walk them through the veil. It's really neat and reassuring when a dying client greets their loved one. I had one lady insist, she had been bedbound for weeks, that she was going shopping with her sister in a couple days. So much that she was agitated until I got her purse and shoes ready for her when her sister arrived. 
The last morning, she was verbal. She woke up and said to the empty doorway, Oh, sister is here. I told you we were going. Her sister had been gone for years. She passed away that evening. It happens more often than it doesn't and is such a source of comfort for me. Number 19. I work in a long-term enhanced care. People don't get better, but we keep them comfortable. There was a man who had cardiac event while sitting on the toilet. He fell forward and put a hole in the bathroom wall. He died. Soon after, a new woman moved into the room. After everything is fixed, she comes out to the nurse's station one night, pissed off. She says, who's going to tell that man to get out of my room? And when are they going to fix the giant hole in the bathroom? I was an RN and was working at a very well-off town in Minnesota. The hospital had two ICUs, with the second one being an overflow-type unit on the third floor. There were seven rooms in that unit, and room two was haunted. Several times, different nurses watched something walk into the room, but the room would be empty without a patient in it. One time, a nurse had an actual patient in room two. It was about 4 a.m., and the nurse was going to do a dressing change. She took the stuff into the room, and the patient asked what she was going to do. She said, change your dressings. The patient said, oh no, that other nurse was just in here about 30 minutes ago and did it. The nurse looked confused. And yes, the dressing was fresh. She went out to the desk and told one of the other nurses, thanks for doing that. And the nurse was baffled and said, I didn't change the dressing. They both freaked out a little bit. Rumor has it that an RN that worked for the hospital a long time ago died in that room. I work overnights in an assisted living facility that mostly deals with dementia and Alzheimer's. When someone who's lived there for a while starts actively dying, it's like the rest of the residents get restless like they know death is pacing the halls. Often the restless residents will one by one start talking while in their rooms. I used to go in and check on them, ask what they were saying, who they were talking to. They all responded, the girl in the closet. I have closed closets. I have left small lights on for them. I have gotten one up and taken her to the living room with me. And still she stared at the doorless linen closet in the hall, chattered away, not always comprehensible. It only stopped after the actively dying patient finally passes. My aunt was a cemetery worker and told me about an absolute thing that happened to her. There was an old chap who would come every Monday at the same time, rain, hail, or shine, and put roses on his wife's grave. He was a well-known regular visitor and would always stop and chat to the workers, including my aunt. Anyway, she was working on this fine Monday and she saw this chap at his wife's grave like usual. She just changed out the roses he just changed out the roses, and she went over to ask if he would like to give the old ones to her to dispose of. What followed was a normal 20-minute chat, talking about all kinds of things. He had to go, so she waved him off and left. The next day, when she turned up at work, there was a new work order for that morning. So grabbing the backhoe, she went to find the plot. Turns out it was right next to the chap's wife. Frowning, she checked the work order again and saw it was the old roses guy. She dug the grave, got it prettied up for the service, and later that morning, the funeral home turned up to inter him. inter him. She went up to the funeral guy in charge. You get to know everyone after a while, and asked why the rush to bury this old chap. What do you mean, why the rush? Well, he was here yesterday putting roses on his wife's grave. What happened to him? The mortuary worker. Uh, he died on Thursday last week. My aunt. 
No, he was here yesterday. Points to the fresh roses on his wife's grave. Mortuary work looking at the flowers. You sure it was him? My aunt starts to get shivers. Yeah, we had a chat like we always do. He was talking about his daughter's new kid. Mortuary worker. Wow. Yep. Bonafide ghost. I worked in a morgue. One time one of the bodies sat up and looked at me, then died again. I don't know what happened that day, but I quit. <laughs> now do construction. I did some research, and it said the body could have been twitching or reacting muscle memory. This happened to a friend's father when he was younger, and when he and his supervisor were leaving for the night, they had left the keys to the building in the morgue. He goes down to get the keys. The body under the sheet sits up and starts moaning. He ran out screaming, and his supervisor explained that this happens sometimes. Gases escaping the body after death do some pretty weird things. And finally, just gotta leave you with your worst nightmare. When my cousin was 18, he was in a bad wreck. He and his girlfriend and her sister were all pronounced dead at the scene. The police arrived to inform my aunt, his mom, and she asked that he be sent to a specific funeral home. While they prepared to embalm him, he raised up and asked, where the hell am I? The funeral director said it was the first time he had ever had to go home and change his pants. I should add that the top of his head was open. His brain was exposed. He was sent to the hospital. The same police officer came to my aunt's to tell her he was not dead, but in the hospital. They thought he'd be in a vegetative state, but a few weeks later, he walked out of the hospital. He has horrible headaches on occasion, but he's led a successful life, and he's a great guy. That would totally freak me out. All right, let's get into some other death rituals and the way people honor them and some ghost stories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right. We go over to Scary Stories and Tales of the Dead, where they have an article. Let's jump right into it. All right. Do you think Halloween with its traditions of trick-or-treat is a relatively modern holiday? Or maybe you've heard it associated with the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain. Would you be surprised to learn that the ancient Greeks and Romans had similar festivals? Well, both Greek and Romans who believed it was possible for restless spirits to roam the earth, had holidays like Halloween to appease the ghosts of the dead. The holidays like Halloween to appease the ghosts of the dead, the Greeks and Romans left food on their doorsteps or at tombs, hoping the ghosts would accept the treats rather than coming into the houses to haunt or trick the living. And the Greeks and Romans liked to tell ghost stories about walking corpses, flesh-eating ghouls, necromancy, and especially haunted houses. In these stories, the dead return to for many different reasons, but mainly to request proper burial. The Greeks and Romans thought funeral rituals 
were very important and believed the lack of a proper burial would result in a restless spirit. We find several stories of reanimated corpses in the works of 2nd century CE writer with the odd name Phlegon of Trellis. His stories, the Mirabilia, is basically the son of ancient times, though without the page three girl. Phlegon recorded every bizarre story he could find. In one, a dead girl secretly returns to her parents' house night after night. When her parents discover her presence, the girl suddenly collapses. Horrified, the parents burn her body to avoid another unexpected return. Evidently, the girl hadn't had a proper funeral rituals the first time around. In another story from Phlegon, a dead man returns to claim his orphan child. When the dead man returns to claim his orphan child, the townspeople refuse to hand over the boy to the rotting, reanimated corpse. The ghoul seizes the child, tears it limb from limb, and eats it. Then he vanishes, leaving the townspeople stunned at the gruesome occurrence. The Greeks and Romans also enjoyed stories of necromancy, a kind of magic in which you summon the spirit of a dead person to ask them questions about things unknown. One such story comes from the 5th century BCE Greek historian Herodotus. In this story, Periander, the tyrant of Corinth, is looking for some misplaced money. He summons the spirit of his wife, Melissa, to ask her help. But Melissa's ghost refuses to cooperate, furious that Periander had cremated her corpse without its clothing. Melissa's complaint is interesting, since her nakedness was really the least of the offenses Periander had committed against her. It was Periander who had murdered her in the first place. But Melissa's ghost doesn't complain about the murder just about her improper burial. This seems strange to the modern reader, but Herodotus tells the story to show just what a bad person Periander was, because among other things, he didn't perform the right funeral rites for his wife. Probably the most popular ghost stories in antiquity were about haunted houses, such as the one from the second century CE Roman writer Pliny the Younger. He says, in Athens, there was a large and roomy house, but it had a bad reputation and an unhealthy air. Through the silence of the night, you could hear the sound of metal clashing, and if you listened more closely, you could make out the clanking of chains, first from far off, then from close by. Soon there appeared a phantom, an old man, emaciated and filthy, with a long beard and unkept hair. He wore shackles on his legs and chains on his wrists, shaking them as he walked. And so the inhabitants of the house spent many dreadful nights lying awake in fear. Illness and eventually death overtook them through a lack of sleep and their increasing dread. For when the ghost was absent, the memory of that horrible apparition preyed on their minds, and their fear itself lasted longer than the initial cause of that fear. And so eventually the house was deserted and condemned to solitude, left entirely to the ghost. But the house was advertised in case someone unaware of the evil should wish to buy or rent it. Then came to Athens the philosopher Athenodorus. He read the advertisement 
and when he heard the low price, was suspicious and made inquiries. He soon learned the whole story, and far from being deterred, was that much more interested in renting the place. When evening began to fall, he requested a bed for himself to be set up in the front of the house, and asked for a small writing tablets, a stylus, and a lamp. He sent all his servants back to the back of the house and concentrated his mind, eyes, and hands on his writing. Thus an unoccupied mind produced foolish fears and caused him to imagine he saw a ghost he had already heard so much about. At first, as usual, there was only night silence. Then came the sound of iron clashing, of chains clanking, yet Athenodorus did not raise his eyes or put down his stylus. Instead, he concentrated his attention to his work. Then the din grew louder, and now it was at the threshold. Now it was inside the room with him. Athenodorus turned, saw, and recognized the ghost. It was standing there beckoning to him with its finger. Rather than answering the summons, Athenodorus motioned with his hand that the ghost should wait a while, and he turned back to his writing. The ghost continued rattling its chains right over the philosopher's head. Athenodorus looked around again. Sure enough, the ghost was still there, beckoning as before. With no further delay, the philosopher picked up his lamp and followed the phantom. The specter walked very slowly, as if weighed down by the chains. Then it walked to the courtyard of the house and suddenly vanished, abandoning its comrade. Athenodorus, now alone, plucked some grass and leaves to mark the spot where the ghost had disappeared. In the morning, he went to the local magistrates and advised that they order the spot to be excavated. When they did, bones were found entwined with chains, bones that the body rotted by time and earth had left bare and corroded by the chains. These bones were gathered and given a public burial. After these rites had been performed, the house was no longer troubled by the spirits. We never find out who the ghost was or why he was in chains. Instead, the story focuses on the concern with proper burial, and the many houses' stories from antiquity end with a burial, allowing the troubled spirit to rest. Pliny's story also gives us an educated hero. Athenodorus, an intelligent man, lends the story credibility and shows the right way to approach the supernatural. This character type appears in many modern ghost stories as well, such as Arthur Mackin's The Bowen, written in 1914. The, uh, the story takes place during World War I, at a battle in which the English are losing badly to the Germans. One English soldier who had happened to know Latin and other useless things desperately shouted, Ad sit Anglis Sanctus Georgius, may St. George help the English, while firing at the Germans. As the Latin scholar uttered his invocation, he felt something between his shoulder between a shudder and an electric shock passed through his body. He heard, or seemed to hear, thousands shouting, St. George, St. George. And as the soldier heard these voices, he saw before him, beyond the trench, a long line of shapes with a shining about them. They were like men who drew the bow. With another shout, their cloud of arrows flew singing, tingling through the air towards the German host. He knew that St. George had brought his hanging court bowmen to help the English. In this case, as in Pliny's story, the hero educated, or the hero's education has provided the way out of a crisis, 
and the moral for the modern audience, perhaps, is that you should all study Latin. It was the chain-rattling ghost so important to Pliny's story that became a favorite of British writers. Here's how Dickens describes the entrance of Marley's ghost in the Christmas Carol. We all know that it started with a ghost with chains. Right. Like Pliny, Dickens creates suspense by having the noise move closer and closer to Scrooge's room. Up the door, then through it. Scrooge, like Pliny's Athenodorus, tries to be calm and rationalizing, thinking the apparition has been caused by indigestion. Right? All about him saying, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link, yard by yard, referring to his own miserliness. Right? In Oscar Wilde's The Canterville Ghost, 1887, an American family is staying in a haunted house in England. Americans were often cursed characterized in 19th century British literature as being highly practical, quite unimaginative, and consequently unalarmed by the supernatural. Here, Wilde describes the first appearance of a ghost. Mr. Otis was awakened by a curious noise in the corridor, outside his room. It sounded like the clank of metal and seemed to be coming near every moment. He got up once, struck a match, and looked at the time. It was nearly one o'clock. He was quite calm and felt his pulse, which was not at all feverish. The strange noises still continued, and with it he heard distinctly the sound of footsteps. He put on his slippers, took a small oblong file out of his dressing case, and opened the door. Right in front of him he saw, in the wand of moonlight, an old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were as red as burning coals. Long gray hair fell over his shoulders in matted coils. His garments, which were antique-cut, were soiled and ragged, and from his wrists and ankle hung heavy manacles and rusty guides. As in Pliny's story, the ghost appears late at night, preceded by the sound of clanking metal, moving closer and closer. The physical appearance of the ghost sounds like just like Pliny's, but Wilde continues the story of an entirely different tone, based on the perception of Americans. My dear sir, said Mr. Otis, I really must insist on your oiling those chains. Have you brought you, for that purpose, a small bottle of Rising Sun Lubricator? It is said to be completely efficacious upon one application, and there are several testimonials to that effect on the wrapper. I shall leave it here for you by the bedroom candles, and will be happy to supply you with more should you require it. Wilde draws on traditional details of ghost stories while also mocking them. But in the end, the Canterville ghost haunts the mansion because his body wasn't buried and his spirit can't rest. Mr. Otis and his family discover a chained skeleton in the mansion, and after the family gives the remains a proper burial, the ghost never appears again. In short, many typical ghost stories, whether from ancient Greek or Rome or more modern times, reflect our religious beliefs concerning the importance of a proper burial and the survival of the spirits after death. The dead have a need to rest in peace, while the living have a need to believe in an afterlife. And these ghost stories, stretching back centuries, show us that such beliefs have not changed much in over 2,000 years. Alright, one way 
people honor the dead is the Day of the Dead in Mexico. Day of the Dead in Mexico, Haunting, Sensuous, and Unforgettable by Leah Lane. All right, this comes from Forbes.com. I hope someday to return again to Mexico to celebrate Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. The darkly beautiful tradition held throughout much of Central and South America. Until then, I will remember with words and photos my trip a few years ago to Riviera Maya in the Mexican state of Quintana Roo in the Yucatan Peninsula. Those three days and nights from October 31st through November 2nd were unforgettable. The Day of the Dead celebration begins with food including regional cuisine, such as tamales and molsas, pumpkin and fruit sweets, and the famed pan de muerto, bread of the dead. Mexican Martins markets sell toys and candy transformed into deathly symbols such as skeletons, coffins, and la muerta, death herself. And then there's the fun, calaveras. Cheeky poems criticizing politicians and chiding friends and family are written as if the person has already passed. A clever mockery of death, reminding us of our own mortality. Shopkeepers and families paint their faces for several days, posing and preening. On October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, children create altars to entice the angelitos, spirits of the dead, children, to return and go door-to-door asking for... Calavartis, sugar schools. In Halloween, it's Halloween and with the emphasis on family and departed loved ones rather than costumes. November 1st, All Saints Day, El Dia de los Angelitos, poignantly focuses on deceased children who are believed on this day to return to life. Graves are cleaned and decorated with candles, paper streamers, and seasonal flowers such as marigolds. On November 2nd, All Souls Day, the true day of the dead. Families and loved ones gather at cemeteries to be there when adult spirits return. Celebrations include music, food, and prayers. Home altars adorned with photos, lighted incense, candles, flowers, and candy skulls inscribed with the names of the deceased. Altars typically include papel picado, Mexican folk art of colorful cut paper, and personal objects and favorite foods of the departed. Lighted candles illuminate the way for the dead souls. And then there are haunting legends. At nightfall, my face painted in stark black and white, I joined a few others in a small boat. We floated on a canote cave, with the symbol of death prowled around in another boat. Candles lighting the water from the heat of faith and life far more evocative and beautiful than any Halloween haunted house. The sound of lapping water in the darkness was truly eerie, as the Katrina in our boat told her mournful tale of her lost children. Katrina is Mexicans, Mexico's favorite, most adapted representation of death, the star of many Day of the Dead celebrations. Ancient stories are part of the Day of the Dead's power, and our Katrina told us about the beautiful Ixtebe, who frightens men with her revenge, and a love, love, 
Lorona, who in grief and anger drowned her sons in a river and has wandered forever to find their bodies. The celebration's ending varies depending on the region. At our Mayan ritual of darkness and fire, the shaman surrounded by flames gave thanks for the sacred elements, water, sun, wind, earth, and life. Villagers danced to drum beats and the Excalacoco community prayed for harmony, promising to continue feeding the fire of life despite the looming specter of death. At least once in your life, plan to share this experience, to bond and have fun and remember those who have come before. I can't think of a more ideal intergenerational trip. That was a pretty cool story. That was from Leah Lane. I do think uh, the Day of the Dead stuff is beautiful in a way that like a lot of our traditions whenever we go back to the source, like Samhain, you know, the festival of death and fire and honoring the past dead loved ones and stuff like that. I feel like those are really cool, so. All right, speaking of dead loved ones, uh, I go over to the New York Times, where they have an article on uh, Indonesia and their death rituals. So, in Indonesia, a blurred boundary between the living and the dead. Sobbing beside her family's grave in the mountain sub-district of Rindingalo, Odia Sulu, 38, clutched a photograph of her mother and spoke haltingly about her how much she missed her. Her mother, Ellis Sulu, had died in 2015 at the age of 65, but a year later in 2016, when her coffin was carried outside and opened by relatives, her body was remarkably intact, the results of local preservation techniques. Still weeping, Miss Sulu stroked her deceased mother's face. Her brother placed his hand gently on one shoulder, and the daughter soon felt calmer calm enough at least to fetch a broom and begin cleaning the grave while her muddy mother's body lay in the sun. Odia Sulu and her family are members of the Toraja people of southwestern Sulawesi, one of Indonesia's largest islands. Known for their elaborate death rituals, which involve preserving and exhuming the dead and sacrificing livestock, Torahans invest vast sums of time and money on funerals and subsequent rites of their loved ones. Many families embrace the presence of tourists, and all of the families depicted in the story welcomed my taking and sharing of these photographs. In more recent years, since the rites have gained international attention, it has become easier for outsiders to learn when and where rituals will be held. In some cases, the schedule for rituals is even uploaded on the local government's tourism website. I was born and raised in Indonesia, and have worked for nearly a decade here as a documentary and travel photographer. I have heard about Torahan culture and have long dreamed of chronicling their unique traditions. 
but Ringdingalo wasn't easy to reach. From Makassar, the largest city in Sulawesi, an eight-hour bus ride carried me to the small town of Rantepo, the capital of North Turahu District. From there, I rode a motorbike another hour and a half before reaching Ringdaga, Ringdingalo. I spent my first night in a village called Pengala, then decided to spend the next few days touring the nearby mountains, hoping to find a family who was performing Manin that week. On the fourth day there, I met Odia Sulu and her relatives, who were about to begin the ritual. They warmly shared coffee, snacks, and their family stories with me. From them, I learned about the other Manin ceremonies in Ringningalo which I also later attended. For Turahans, death is a gradual and social process. The bodies of the people who have recently died are kept at home and preserved by their families, sometimes for years until the family has enough money to pay for a funeral. The spirit of the dead is believed to linger in the world before the death ceremony is held. Afterwards, the soul will begin its journey to Puya, the land of the spirits. The longer the deceased person remains at home, the more family can save for the funeral, and the bigger and more expensive the ceremony can be. Elaborate funeral ceremonies can last for 12 days and include sacrifices of dozens of buffaloes and hundreds of pigs. Such ceremonies can cost as much as hundreds of thousands of dollars. As a Balinese, I find certain elements of the Torahan culture and many other indigenous traditions in Indonesia quite similar to my own. For both Turahan and Balinese, death does not represent an ending or a goodbye. Turahan people believe the spirit of the dead will continue protecting their families, and so do uh, Balinese. The dead never leave us, thus we worship them. For both peoples, this way of thinking helps them coping with grief. It has offered profound meaning even now during the pandemic. Today, Torhans are largely Christian, but their age-old funeral practices, which predate their conversion to Christianity, persist. Menin, for example, which carried out every one, two, or three years, or more, depending on the family's agreement, is meant to be a way to honor deceased loved ones. According to the belief, performing the rite will result in a better harvest in the following year. According to local legend, the ritual of Manin is rooted in the story of a hunter named Pong Rumasek, who, hundreds of years ago, found an abandoned corpse in the Torahan jungle. Moved by the stranger's misfortune, Rumasek took care of the dead body and dressed it up in his clothes. From then on, he was said to be endowed with good luck and bountiful harvests. Locally, though, the origin story is, also, is often considered apocryphal. Nobody knows when, where, or how exactly the tradition was first invented. Indy Alarante, a photographer for Tor Toraha, who has documented Torahan death rites since 2006, told me. Once Ellis Sulu's grave house, or Batane, was clean, her relatives removed her body from its coffin, redressed it in new clothes, but not before taking pictures with the dead body. 
After completing the ceremony, the family headed back to Odia Sulu's home to share a meal of tradition or traditional Torhan food that had been prepared earlier in the morning. The meal signaled the end of the rite. I'm longing for my mother so much, Miss Sulu said. Seeing her body heals my heart. But after this, I have to wait for two years to see her again. On the next Manin. The 13 days I spent in North Toraha in 2016 were nearly enough to explore the Toraha people's many traditions. So I kept returning each year until the COVID-19 pandemic hit. As is true everywhere in the world, the pandemic has upended many aspects of life here, including local death rituals. Some families in Ringdingalo are still performing Manin, despite the dangers of large familial gatherings, but others have decided to put the rites on hold. Such a change might seem as dramatic, if tragic, reversal of the Toraha, but for now at least, the welfare of the living members must be prioritized over the welfare of the dead. Alright, very cool article. I remember hearing about this for the first time uh, several years back and being like, oh my gosh, they dig up the corpses? That's so macabre. But then when I actually saw a video of what they were doing, they were basically cleaning them up, uh, celebrating their life, and then making sure that where they were laid to rest was clean again and all this kind of stuff. So it was more about respecting who came before and I thought that was kind of beautiful too. So we go over to history.com where they have an article by Thaddeus Morgan on how the Vikings honor their dead. Vikings made their bloody but years ago through their nomadic lifestyle and wild practicing of pillaging and conquering anything or anyone who crossed their path. These nomads were often seen as savages as they traveled throughout Europe but the Vikings held a high regard for life and death of their fellow Norsemen. So how did they honor their dead? Nailing down the exact rituals of Viking funerals is difficult, as they kept few written accounts of their lives and deaths. But thanks to a few remaining accounts and archaeological remains that have been found throughout much of Europe, it's possible to resurrect some of their funeral traditions. Most Vikings were sent to the afterlife in one of two ways, cremation or burial. Cremation, often upon a funeral pyre, was particularly common among the earliest Vikings, who were fiercely pagan and believed the fire smoke would help carry the deceased to the afterlife. Once cremated, the remains are also might be buried, usually in an urn. For both, let's see, for both cremated remains and bodies, burial locations ranged widely, from shallow dug graves, often used for women and children, to burial mounds that could hold multiple bodies and groupings of mounds or grave fields that served the same role as cemeteries. In Norse mythology, boats symbolized safe passage into the afterlife on the same vessel that aided their travels in life. So they played a key role in funeral rites. Some grave mounds were built to resemble ships, with stones used as the outline of the vessel's shape. For other high-ranked Norsemen, 
the honors went a step further, and they were buried with their actual boats. But these types of elaborate boat funerals weren't reserved just for just men. One of the most extravagant boat burials honored two women, who likely died around 834 AD, known as the Osenberg ship. It was one of the most well-preserved Viking artifacts. While the Vikings were known for the craftsmanship that went into their vessels in general, the size and detail of the Osenberg was exceptional. 70 feet long and nearly 17 feet wide, the ship had 15 oars on each side, a pine mast more than 30 feet high, and was spacious enough to fit 30 people. But contrary to popular belief, funeral boats were rarely sent out to seats, to sea, likely because the cost of building these legendary longboats was pro prohibitive. So it's unlikely that there were many ships that were set sail and then set ablaze by fiery arrows shot from the shores. Regardless of how the body was disposed, a few rituals remained almost constant. The body was draped in new clothes prepared specifically for the funeral, and the ceremony was held featuring songs, chants, food, and alcohol. Tributes and gifts known as grave goods, and usually of equal value to the deceased status, were buried and burned along to, with the recipient. The goods ran the gamut from weapons to jewelry to slaves. One Viking site, Flakstad, Norway, contained multiple bodies, some decapitated in a single grave. Based on analysis of their diets and DNA, I was determined that they were like slaves who had been sacrificed to spend eternal eternity with their former masters. Women were often taken in a in as sex slaves as part of a Viking culture, so the idea that they would be sacrificed with their master is feasible. And according to a report based on accounts from Middle Ages traveler Ahmad Ibn Fadlon, one instance of the funeral of a Viking chieftain included a sacrificial female slave who was forced to drink copious amounts of alcohol. With large amounts of alcohol, then taken by every man in the village as tribute to the deceased. From there, she was strangled with a rope and stabbed by a matriarch of the village, known as the Angel of Death, then placed in the boat and her master, with her master and set fire. Oh my gosh, that's like crazy. So theirs were less, less loving, that's for sure. Um, but what can you expect uh, from... The people that you know raided europe and stuff like that so we go over to abc news where they have an article dead people get lifelike poses at their funeral right this is written in 2014. with a glass of bush beer a menthol cigarette and a new orleans saints themed manicure miriam burbank attended one last party her funeral Burbank was posed sitting at a table in a living room setting with a disco ball glittering overhead to set the mood for her final party. The Louisiana woman's daughter, who called her mama, told ABC News New Orleans affiliate WGNO that it was the perfect send-off for their vivacious mother. Louisiana seems to be the place for extreme involvement. In April, Mickey Easterling, a New Orleans socialite who passed away at the age of 83 was celebrated one last time at a grand memorial service. 
where the flamboyant philanthropist wore a pink feather boa and held a glass of champagne. Famed jazz musician Uncle Lionel Bastide, Batiste, body was propped up at a funeral home as mourners said goodbye to the New Orleans legend. The Marin Funeral Home in Puerto Rico has created thematic wakes for several funerals, including a slain boxer and a deceased man who loved his motorcycle. Caleb Wilde, a sixth-generation mortician in Pennsylvania who tweets and blogs about the industry, said extreme embalming is on the fringe of the industry. Most funeral homes, the most extreme thing they do is dressing the deceased in shorts, so it's a very rare thing. If asked, it's something he would be willing to consider to help someone fulfill their final wish. However, Wilde estimated it would take quadruple the typical numbers of hours to prepare such a unique funeral experience. It would mean we would have to change how we embalm a person. We would likely have to use harder fluid so the body would stay stiff in that position, and the person would have to be embalmed in the position they would be viewed. If we were given that request, it would certainly be something we would take a hard look at first. All right. I haven't really heard of people doing this. I know back in the day they used to take uh, pictures with the deceased, which I thought was creepy enough. But can you imagine posing somebody and then trying to bury them later? Or I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. But if it helps the family grieve, I say more power to them. Uh, there's the thing we covered in the cannibalism episode about eating the dead and the kuru and all that kind of stuff, but eh, we'll skip over that one. Alright, we go over to Interesting Engineering, where they have an article, Nine Impressive Ways Humans Have Attempted to Preserve the Dead. Since time immemorable, mankind has spent blood, sweat, and tears to provide their deceased loved ones with the ritual burial worthy of their memory. From basic funeral pyres to burial, the people of the past honored their dead in a myriad of ways. But some cultures went the extra mile to attempt to preserve the bodies of the dead long after their entombment. We can never be entirely sure why they went to such great efforts, but their practices have some surprising success stories. Here, then, are some of the most successful and unusual ways that our ancestors in modern society attempt and have attempted to preserve dead human bodies. Number one, the Egyptians were masters of preserving the dead. Most people today have heard about the process of mummification conducted by the ancient Egyptians, but to our modern eyes, the efforts they exp expended in preserving the dead seems a little alien. However, they appear to have honed it to such a degree that many very well-preserved bodies can be found today. First and foremost, the body was washed in palm wine and water from a river. Next, an incision was made into the torso, and most of the internal organs were removed, with some placed in canopic jars. The heart tended to be returned to the body, however. Next, the brain was removed through the cadaver's nose with a thin hook. The body cavity was then stuffed with a salt mixture called natron and left to desiccate for 40 days. Lastly, the body was washed again, wrapped in oiled linens, and placed in a sarcophagus. 
Number two, embalming is pretty effective. Uh, pretty effective. Modern embalming is one of the most effective and commonly used techniques for preserving dead bodies. After bodily fluids are drained and gases are released, the body is usually bathed in formaldehyde, an alcohol or water. If done correctly, most bodies have a shelf life of about 10 years, but this process was taken to an extreme with the mortal remains of Vladimir Lenin. Each year, Lenin's cadaver is re-embalmed in a cocktail of preservatives and antimicrobial solutions. Each embalming session lasts a couple of weeks. His body is covered in a rubber suit that keeps a thin layer of embalming fluid trapped against his skin. Number three, you can steep a body in honey. Mellification or steeping in honey is another interesting and effective means of preserving bodies. According to a 16th century apothecary called Li Shiz Hen, the people of ancient Arabia were masters of the practice. By his accounts, mellification started just before death. The dying person would begin a regimen of eating and drinking and bathing in honey. When they died, the corpse was placed in a stone coffin and submerged in honey. After about a century or more, the body was later pulled out of the honey brine and broken into small confectionery pieces to be sold as a delicacy? Oh gosh, gross. Those beliefs, so we are told, the mellification of human remains were potent cures for broken limbs and other ailments. Honey, it turns out, is a pretty good medium for preserving bodies. It contains, among other things, hydrogen peroxide, which is a powerful antimicrobial agent. Plastination is very effective and artistic. Developed by Gunther von Hagens, aka Dr. Death, in the late 1970s, human bodies can be preserved using a technique called plastination. The amazingly effective preservation technique involves regular embalming techniques, as well as by fixation in formaldehyde and to prevent decomposition. Once these preparatory steps are complete, the body is partially or completely dissected, and the cadaver is then kept in a bath of zero, sub-zero acetone. The body freezes, and all the water within the cells is replaced with acetone. Next, the body is then placed in a bath of liquid polymer, polyester, silicone rubber, or epoxy resin. This dispels the acetone and replaces it with plastic inside the tissues. The plastic-filled cells are then cured using UV light, heat, and gas. Oh my gosh. Cryogenic works very well too. Cryogenics is another interesting method of preserving human bodies. Unlike others on the list, this method may open doors for dead bodies to actually be resuscitated in the future, when or if technology allows. The process begins with a series of intravenous injections to prevent brain and organ damage. After this is complete, the body is packed in ice and is cooled by replacing its blood with preservation fluid and anti-freezing agents. When the body is cooled to the desired temperature, it is then placed in a tank of pure nitrogen and kept at negative 196 degrees Celsius. While it sounds impressive, impressive, the technique is not cheap. One of the most prominent companies who conducts this kind of process, called Alcor, charge about 200000 per body, plus an annual membership fee of $1,000. 
Cinnabar was once used in Europe and South America. About 5,000 years ago in what is today Palencia, Spain, graves have been found where crushed cinnabar appears to have been used intentionally to preserve bodies of the dead. This is one of the oldest accounts of attempted body preservations yet discovered in Europe. While not common, it is clear that this process was intentional, rather than happenstance. For example, the nearest cinnabar mine to the burial site was miles away. Also, hundreds of kilograms of the stuff were used to layer and preserve the bodies. Alright, number seven, how about a Russian doll approach? I'm worried about this one. In the 2nd century BC, a high-ranking member of the Chinese Han dynasty, Zen Zhu, died at around the age of 50. Her body was then placed in a series of coffins, each on progressively smaller, with her body in the smallest of them, akin to the kind of Russian doll of coffins. She was also dressed in around 22 dresses with nine ribbons. Her body was also treated with as yet unknown preservative fluid that managed to keep her body relatively supple thousands of years later. When her body was exhumed about 2100 years later, her body was found to be in surprisingly good shape. Body bag, anyone? In Peru, one doctor claims to have discovered the perfect method for preserving human bodies, sticking them in a plastic bag. The doctor, Dr. Edgar Aranda, tested his special embalming and encapsulation technique on his own brother's body. Dr. Arana spent around 10 years developing this technique along with his university students. According to Dr. Aranda, one has to extract all the blood and replace it with other liquids, and they are a chemical mix that I keep secret for the moment. The technique involves preserving the body in a mix of chemicals and then finally wrapping it in a plastic bag. For images released of his brother's body, who died 13 months prior, the preservation is impressive, with his skin, hair, and nails in excellent condition. Um, I did meet a Native American uh, guy in Tennessee once, and he told me that he spends a lot of his weekends in cemeteries uh, performing rites and rituals to release the dead that are entombed there, uh, because he says that their spirits cry out to him for release because the embalming process uh, doesn't allow them to move on or something like that. And so he, I don't know what he uses or anything, but he said he goes around and like tries to help them move on and release them uh, from what we've done to them, basically. All right, we go over to Babel Magazine where they have an article, Death and Translation, How Other Countries Treat Their Dead. All right, by Thomas Devlin. Humans tend to spend a lot of their lives not thinking about death. That's a good, that's good a lot of time, but you don't want to be on the first date pondering your mortal existence. But shunting death to the bottom of our subconscious all the time isn't always the best option. Pondering death rituals in different cultures as well as our own doesn't have to be something we dread. In 1960, in the 1860s, the most popular tourist attraction in the United States was Niagara Falls. It's pretty obvious why. In a world before television or really any other access to images, 
Niagara Falls was the most exciting thing you could imagine. The second most popular attraction, though, is more surprising, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. The idea of going to a graveyard for fun, even one as beautiful as Greenwood, is seen as either morbid or disrespectful in 2017. We think of dead bodies as the vacant remains of our loved ones, or as terrifying things that will haunt horror movies. The fact that we even call them dead bodies is telling. It separates the person they were from the body they are now. Americans prefer a decent amount of distance from the dead. We embalm bodies more than is necessary to ensure that we don't have to think about the decomposition of our loved ones. And if we don't bury the bodies, we cremate them to get it all dealt with immediately. When someone wants to do something novel for their funeral, there's often major pushback by people who see profanity in alternative funerary, alternative funerary customs. Take, for example, the Urban Death Project, which is attempting to find a way to naturally decompose bodies so the people can return to the earth. Even when people specifically ask for this after they die, family members will often try to prevent it. The U.S. approach to death, however, is not universal. Looking at death rituals in different cultures can call into question the perceived norms of death industry, and might even make you reconsider your own postmortem plans. Japan, the high-tech future of burial. Japan is often seen as some sort of high-tech metropolis where everything looks like the future. While this may not be universally true across the entire country, it certainly is for the burial industry. Japan is running into a burial problem in that it's a pretty small country with rapidly aging population. It's impractical to bury everybody there, as it would completely overwhelm the available cemeteries. Nowadays, everyone in the country is cremated, which has helped. Even the emperor or empress of Japan announced a few years ago that they would break with royal burial tradition to be cremated. This doesn't solve everything, though. When some of the United States is cremated, family members often take the urns home and maybe spread the ashes. Japan, however, follows the Buddhist tradition in which living family members pay for gravestones upkeep and travel to visit their dead. In order to keep doing this while also addressing the problem of space, they've come up with a very technological solution. As can be seen in many photos, Japan's population has made cemeteries extraordinarily crowded, leading to the Japanese to look for other ways to put their bodies to rest. In 2006, Buddhist priest Taihun Yahima built a cemetery, or more properly, a columbarium in Ruridim that looks more like a scene from the future than any resting place you've seen before. The walls are filled with glass, Buddha statues, each in a little box with LED. Each of these statues represents a person whose remains are kept there. Family members are able to visit this building with the swipe of a card, which lights up the Buddha statue of their loved one. If you have never seen this before, it's worth looking at photos to see just how beautiful this is. This and other methods are being tried out in Japan, and they all have their fans and their detractors. It's worth noting that the United States has its own ideas involving light and ashes, like the Columbia University Death Lab's idea to turn the underside of a bridge into a brightly lit memorial park. 
While these may seem fanciful to some, they work hard to be respectful of those who choose to be laid to rest there. It is a modern way to address an ageless problem. Mexico, of course, as we mentioned, the Day of the Dead. The most well-known aspect of Me Mexico's relationship with the dead is Dia de los Muertos. As far as the death rituals in different cultures go, this might be the most famous, and the holiday can reveal a lot about Mexican attitudes, though like many holidays, it often faces commercialization issues. To the outside world, the Day of the Dead is a raucous celebration, like if you took Mardi Gras and added skeletons. This is far from traditional, though. The Day of the Dead's reputation has been strongly affected by tourists from the United States, thanks to its close association with Halloween. One of the most iconic Hollywood representations of the holiday, in which James Bond walks through a massive Dia de los Muertos parade in Spectre, is entirely fictional. In fact, Mexico was so worried about disappointing tourists that they started holding the parade based on the movie in 2016. With this in mind, you might think that Mexicans treat death almost whimsically, but to see their real attitudes, you have to look past Mexico City. A grave in Hanitzio, an island in Mexico, is decorated with offerings, flowers, and candles to welcome the dead. As the name implies, Dia de los Muertos is held in honor of those who have died. It is a time for people to reconnect with dead loved ones, inviting them into their household with altars filled with their favorite foods. It is usually depicted with traditional Mexican foods and sugar schools, but really these altars can include anything like bagels and tequila. I want Kit Kats and coffee on mine. It is a spiritual day and a very personal one. Parents tell their children about the ancestors they may have never met, and people gather in the cemetery to listen to mariachi music all night. In doing so, they bond with loved ones who have passed on from this world. They talk about South Sulawesi, about them assuming the dead bodies and cleaning them and stuff. Here's some information we didn't learn before. During this time, the family still talks to them, and they call the person to Makula, which means sick person. It has been months after their funeral, a Christian funeral, thanks to Dutch colonialism, is held. And the funerals themselves are truly incredible, bringing communities together with gifts and celebrations that draw tourists from around the world. Families often make a wooden effigy of the person who died, called a tautau, which is placed on the balconies outside the burial sites. Even strangers to Westerners is the second funeral. Even stranger to Westerners is the second funeral. This is when families visit their ancestors to bring them gifts like food and cigarettes and take the mummified bodies out to give them fresh clothing. Like before, these bodies are treated the same as a living person. Seeing people who make the dead such an intrinsic part of the culture can seem a bit unusual. This isn't to say one attitude is any better or worse than another but it should call into question that sometimes impersonal way Americans deal with death. Too often we let cultural taboos dictate what we do, and perhaps it's worth reconsidering how we treat our dead. After all, they're people too. Right. Let's go over to India Times, where they talk about creepy stories from funeral homes, crematoriums that will haunt you forever. Bobby Wilkes, the man who wouldn't bury the dead. In 1988, a 51-year-old experienced funeral director would 
always advise family of the deceased not to watch the body as the casket is being lowered, for it might be difficult for the families. While families heeded his advice, once when he gave the grave spite, the family of the deceased walked a little away and kept their eyes on Wilkes. That's when he saw Wilkes throw some potted flowers in the grave. He didn't put on the lid of the vault. A 375 add-on that Wilkes had sold them. They went to the police and they arrested Wilkes, and the only way to check the claims of others who complained against him was to exhume bodies that were buried by Wilkes, and 30 graves in all were dug up. At least 10 coffins were stuffed with garbage, like bottles, dirty diapers, used cans of dog food, and bags of hair. At least two coffins were buried on their side, and one had an arm sticking out of the coffin. That suggests that Wilkes didn't lower the caskets. They were dumped in. In October 1989, Wilkes pleads guilty to 48 different charges and was sentenced to 28 years and 11 months in prison. Talk about disrespecting your dead loved ones. Mark Calebs, the man who stole from the deceased. Shortly after midnight on June 27, 1998, the staff of a funeral home in London, Kentucky, was alerted that there had been a break-in. They looked around They looked around and nothing seemed to be missing. That is until they looked in a casket of a nine-year-old Brittany Ray Bradley. The poor thing passed away after battling a rare cancer for two years. And as for what was missing, well, that was her underwear. Probes revealed that Mark had stolen the deceased undergarments, but there were no traces of any sexual abuses. Caleb's was charged with third-degree burglary, abuse of a corpse, and theft, and criminal mischief. Mark Villela, the man who killed his wife to avoid divorce expenses. On August 1st, 1999, funeral director Mark and his wife, Ixelli, had a terrible argument, leading to a huge fight. Ixelli called her sister and told her about the spat between her and her husband, and her sister got worried when Ixelli did not contact her since three days post the fight. Her missing report was filed and the investigation began. Families were doubtful that Exeli would abandon her 18-month-old toddler and walk out of the house. On the same day the police interviewed him, Mark hosted a closed casket funeral for 89-year-old Marjorie Hutchinson. The police had reason to believe that Mark put Exeli's body in the same casket as Hutchinson and buried them together. Three weeks after Exeli was missing, they confronted Mark and told him they were going to exhume Hutchinson's casket. So he confessed, he confessed to stabbing Exeli in the heat of the moment. Mark didn't want to go through the costly divorce and he didn't want to share custody of their son. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Anthony Parisi, the man with the missing head. In July 1986, Anthony Parisi passed away at the age of 83. Parisi, a co-founder of a grocery store in Mount Vernon, New York, died of natural causes and his body was being held at Yanan Tuano Funeral Home. On July 26, the employees of the funeral home went to prepare Parasi for his funeral, and when they looked into his casket, they discovered that the head was missing. Police were called and they speculated that someone broke into the funeral home during the night and used a razor scalpel to remove the head. Once the head was cut off, the intruder took it with them. 
Nothing else in the funeral home was stolen or perturbed. There weren't even signs of a break-in. The police were baffled by the case. They had no idea who stole the head, why it was stolen, and they still don't know what happened to it because it was never found. Julie Mott, whose body was stolen from her casket. A pretty young 26-year-old woman who lost her life battling against cystic fibrosis left behind a mysterious case post her death. While the funeral should have been part of the grieving process for Mott's friends and family, the funeral was the start of a new nightmare. Something, sometime after the visitation, and just before closing of the funeral home, someone took away Julie's body. The police and family are stunned with this, for no one knows who actually stole the body. Theories of an obsessive, unidentified boyfriend, involvement of the funeral home itself have been formed, but it's still unknown as to how and where did Julie's body disappear. Robert Winston, the man who stored dead fetuses in his garage. Never good at business, Robert Winston got in the funeral business after his retirement as an electrician. He was never good at handling finances, so would always be in debts. By the late 2000s, he had absolutely no money to pay his bills. His one source of steady income was Maggie Women's Hospital, who gave him dead fetuses and newborns to cremate. He would simply take the money, pay his bills without having a penny to cremate them, so he started storing them at the funeral home. In March of 2004, his license was suspended for three years for not for not storing the fetuses, but for running an unlicensed funeral home, and he didn't notify the state that he was selling prearranged funeral plans. With no license and no money, he started doing something unbelievable. In August 2005, his ex-wife called the police and she told them he had been storing bodies in his garage. The police searched the garage and inside they found 179 fetuses that were over 16 weeks of gestation. 154 fetuses that were under 16 weeks of gestation, and 253 biohazard containers containing unspecified fetal autopsy remains, and the remains of 19 newborns that were born alive but died shortly after. Police believe that all the remains came from the hospital between 2000 and 2002. Michael the man who transported organs from the deceased, illegally. Transplantation of bones and tissue from a deceased body isn't something unnatural or uncommon. However, there are four primary rules must, one must comply to. First, they have to have permission from the deceased and or the family. Second, the person couldn't have had any communicable diseases. Third, the person couldn't be too old. And finally, the person can't be dead longer than 15 hours. Mastro Marino's company ignored all of them. Mastro Marino used a network of undertakers, and he would pay them a standard fee of about $1,000 per body. He would then send a team of three people, and they would harvest the body. None of the families were aware that any of this was happening. One notable body that was carved up was former host of PBS Masterpiece Theater, Alistair Cook. When Cook died, he was 94 and had cancer. Yet arm and leg bones were taken from his body. On each body, Mastorino apparently made $10,000 to $15,000, and he illegally harvested bone and tissue from at least 1,076 bodies. If you do the math, it's clear that the grotesque scam made 
this guy a multi-millionaire. A multi-millionaire. Oregon State Hospital. In the basement of Oregon State Hospital, there were shelves that were filled with copper canisters that had names on them. But over time, the writing had faded. When photographer David Meisel took a closer look, he realized that each canister held the remains of a psychiatric patient that once stayed there. Since then, they have been removed from the canisters, laying them rest to rest in a restful place. We will read from Ghost City Tours an article called The Haunted Mortuary at 4800 Canal Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. Each October, New Orleans, New Orleans flock to the mortuary haunted house for one thing, terror. As one of Louisiana's most haunted and popular house attractions, the mortuary has found itself on more than a few national best haunted house attraction lists, including on the compiled by the Travel Channel and the Discovery Channel. Throngs of people wait for their chance to go through the Greek Revival Mansion. It only makes sense that these thrill-seekers rest against the iron gates to one of the city's oldest cemeteries, the Hope Mausoleum, which was established as early as 1846. While music and screams puncture the otherwise silent night, guests wait in anticipation. But what exactly are they waiting for? The always thrilling scape of blood across the walls or titillating thought of being chased down a narrow hallway with no chance of escape. Or perhaps more appropriately, they're hoping to be grabbed or touched by one of the attraction's many ghosts. Because while the Mortuary Haunted House is known for its supernatural themes, 4800 Canal Street is actually a real haunted house. Why? Because for nearly 85 years, the mansion was not a haunted house, but a funeral home. The biggest funeral home in the city. Right? It says as a side note, the Mortuary no longer offers ghosts offers ghost tours or haunts on the property. The history of the mortuary house in the early days. Before its infamous time as a funeral home, the mortuary house was built in 1872 by Irish immigrants, Mary Slattery and her husband, John, whose last name is thought to have been Devonshire, who had purchased the property from Miss Ina Hoyle in the time of its construction Mary Slattery had hopes of 4800 Canal Street being a family home for generations. Part of the land was acquired from the next-door cemetery, the Hebrew congregation of Temed Derek, now Hope Mausoleum, spanning nearly two or three blocks of its entirety, from Gasket Street, now Cleveland, to Canal, and Anthony to Bernadette. The Greek revival that was erected was considered one of the most beautiful in the area, a perfect portrait of aristocratic New Orleans. By 1880s, that Mary Slattery and her husband John were living in the mansion with their six children and a couple, the Keens, who were good friends. John Jr. records show was working on a stone cutter for the Jewish cemetery just steps away from the White Creek Revival. For as far as the Slattery could see, tombstones were all they could see. Uh, while the Jewish cemetery sat on their left, another, now extant, cemetery rested behind them. Not even two blocks up the road was Metarari Cemetery, which houses thousands of dead. As the mortuary's owner, Jeff Borden, was once recorded as saying, 
The mortuary is a haunted house in a real haunted in a real haunted house. We're probably in the middle of probably a million graves within a square mile radius of the building, starting within inches away from the building, which made sense that 48 Revival might be then become a funeral home. P.J. McMahon's and Son's Funeral Home. In October of 1905, the Slattery residence was sold to Miss Marie LaFontaire and Kevin Klein, or William Klein. Though it's tough to prove one way or another, it's thought that Mary Slattery and her young daughter died of yellow fever during the city's last epidemic. LaFontaire and Klein kept the property until 1923 before selling it to notary E. Howard McCaleb. From there, in 1928, McCaleb admitted that he'd purchased the property on behalf of P.J. McMahon, and it was at that time it was converted into a funeral home. And boy, was the funeral home but both magnificently spooky, but also just plain magnificent. In 1959, P.J. McMahon and Sons had added more than a few special features to the property, including an elevator and a garage for sneakily bringing in the corpses away from all seeing eyes of the public. There were smoking parlors for men and extra private rooms for ladies. Private bedrooms were added on the second floor for grieving families, and if that were not enough, there were dining rooms and eat-in areas as well. But enough about fancy amenities, because P.J. McMahon's and Sons was far more advanced when it came to the funeral services. The mansion also equipped with an autopsy room, an embalming room, an on-site crematorium, cold storage for the dead, a casket and flower store, and yes, they, a place for the caskets themselves. P.J. McCombs and Sons was so large, so architecturally sound, uh, astounding, that it is said the funeral home conducted over 20,000 funerals during its 80-year-long stretch. And if you believe the rumors, the funeral home was able to conduct eight different funerals all at once. Impressive. By the 1980s, P.J. McMahon & Sons had merged with the Security Industrial Funeral Home Corporation, and less than a decade later, 4800 Canal Street was once again sold, this time in 1996, to Lowen L.A. Holdings. According to the various sources, it was during this period that the funeral home had begun getting rid of a lot of its fascinating additions from the mid-20th century. The 14,000-square-foot property soon became way too much to oversee, and the days of eight funerals at once slowly came to an end. The upkeep of such an operation far exceeded what the management were capable of doing and spending to afford the luxurious status quo. Right? It didn't come to much surprise in 2004 that Lewin L.A. Holdings, at the point known as Alderwoods, was unable to hold the funeral home. The whole property was bought out by EHN2 Holdings. I think it's sad that it's sold to people before and now it's sold to shell corporations. It's crazy. All right. The overall plan was to shed the property of its funeral home additives and convert it into an opulent day spa. But in the midst of all this construction, all the demolition, Neil Corporation pulled out of the project and out of 4800 Canal Street, leaving the Greek revival to be a literal shell of its former self. But who's to buy the old funeral home? 
As you can imagine, someone who would take a look at the property and not see it as long-haul renovation, but the opportunity to create an attraction that would draw thousands every year. The ghosts in the mortuary house? On July 2nd, 2007, Jeff Bourne, owner of PSX Audio Video Technology, scrawled his name on the buying country as the new owner of 4800 Canal Street. His plan? To convert the old funeral home into the best haunted house attraction in Louisiana, even the South had ever seen. He intended to open it in time for the same September, leaving the crews only three months to finish what Neal Corporation has started. While some may have called the born bona fide crazy, there was no stopping him. It was during that three-month stint that the paranormal investigative group out of Los Angeles reached out to Bourne about conducting a hunt at the mansion. They'd heard of the place having some spooky paranormal activity and were interested to learn how operating a funeral home for 80 years might have influenced the number of spirits in the place. Apparently, the paranormal group from Los Angeles had so much success and other investigation groups overheard and began reaching out to Bourne as well. Pensacola Paranormal followed up shortly after, and Bourne realized that something eerily spectacular not only was the owner of a golden time, Halloween time gold mine, but he was actually sitting on a gold mine, in that the ex-funeral home he purchased was actually haunted. Following the various paranormal groups who held ghost hunts at the mortuary's house, Jeff Bourne decided to capitalize on the interest, and by that, we mean Jeff Bourne went all out. He set up over 30 cameras all over. The mortuary all the better capture any strange mists or apparitions roaming the halls. Those cameras included night vision cams, color thermal as well. Bourne was ready to discover just what was haunting the Greek Revival Mansion. There were also microphones and audio equipment installed in hopes that the phantom's voices might be caught. Right, talks about the escape room he made, um, basically saying that a lot of people saw stuff, hands grasping at hidden places. All right, they saw the ghost girl and her possible suitor, placeful ghosts and a somber mortician. Now you see them, now you don't, ghosties. Definitely in the midst of cemeteries and being a funeral home and everything, definitely contributed to the ghosts that they did see there. Um, yeah, it said it's no longer a haunted house attraction, but it does still do the escape room whenever it gets around Halloween time. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, let's move on. All right. I hope I've given you a glimpse of the dead and how people honor them and put them to rest. Um, also some scary stories here and there about morticians and things that they've experienced with dead bodies naturally um so thank you for listening today um i know we barely scratched the surface of the dead and you know funeral rites and all the rest i know back in the day there were coffins uh where more uh, funeral people would like smell the tube that was all the way into the coffin to make sure people didn't were actually dead basically, or they would have a bell tied to a string that a person could pull if they were actually alive. So we've covered that in other episodes, but there's just something uh, 
kind of fascinating about how different cultures uh, deal with their dead. So pretty cool. All right. If you'd like to follow us on the Facebook page, it is P.S. Spooky Shiz. You can also search for Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. Um, same place. It's a great way to connect with me and send me your stories for future episodes. Um, so yeah, this was a really cool subject to explore. And I cannot believe some of the funeral director's stories. But I digress. All right. Stay spooky, my friends.